Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Med Conversations. You are here with Davo and Rahul. Back together once again. And, Rahul. Mm. Rahul. and I've been on 14 days of nights, so hopefully this goes well. Mm. 14 nights of nights. Today we're talking about pulmonary embolism, or PE as it's colloquially known. So the structure of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology first, just to give you a bit of a sense of what exactly happens in a PE, and then how you evaluate a, a PE and the three questions that you've got to ask yourself uh, when you're working up a PE. And then finally, we're going to finish with some management scenarios, what you do if you've got this result, how do you manage it, et cetera, et cetera. There's about five or six of them. That just reminds me, I used to think PE meant plural fusion in like <laughs> way too late, like fourth year of school <laughs> or fifth year, and then that blew my open mind open. So moving right along to pathophysiology. So how does a, a PE clot start? Where Where's the baby made? Uh, Verkhoff's triad. That's the, that's the one. That's the so stasis, hypercoagulability, or endothelial injury. That's a little triangle. If you have any of those three or some combination of them, that will lead to activated platelets and clots. And uh, most of these uh, clots form in the lower extremity proximal vein. So that's iliac, femoral, and popliteal. Uh, but you can have calf vein DVT that sometimes embolizes to the lung, but that's pretty rare. And so, so just as an example of stasis, mm. for, so we've got three, stasis, mm. hypercoagulability, and endothelial injury. Stasis, I guess, would be things like sitting in a long car ride mm. or... Driving to Perth. Yeah, yeah, doing that sort of thing. Hypercoagulability usually refers to you know, the genetic sort of, or at least acquired, you know, thrombophilias. Mm. Or if you've got cancer or something, you've got some kind of inflammation going on in your blood. That's true. Then the endothelial injury. So that might be something like a pick line or some kind of foreign device sitting in there causing some damage to the endothelium. Mm. So where does the clock go next? Where does it end up after it's in the proximal lower extremity vein? Here we go to the vena cava, usually the inferior vena cava, mm. obviously, if it's in the proximal lower veins. Yep, and then it flicks into the right atrium, and then occasionally you get something called a paradoxical embolism at this point. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> So tell me what a paradoxical embolism is, Rahul. That's when you have some sort of left-to-right shunt, or right-to-left shunt, rather, from the, in the heart. That means that the clot can go from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart without getting caught up in those fine little vessels up in the lungs. And so then from there, it can go systemically in the arterial system anyway, so like strokes to the gut, skin, whatever. So a very common cause of cryptogenic stroke in a young person. That's why they all get transesophageal echocardiograms. And then, uh, but PE is right, that's a lung issue. So the main problem is hypoxia. What causes that? Why do you get hypoxic if there's a clot in your lung? So you get uh, an increased alveolar arterial gradient, which I think we've spoken about before in one of our podcasts, but let's run over what that means a little bit. So it just means you've got air in your lungs. You've got plenty of oxygen in there, but it can't get to the to the artery because there's a clot in the way. There's no blood moving into the into the vascular space. Mm -hmm. There's some other mechanisms to that as well. So if you've got a clot, um, the lungs respond by increasing pulmonary vascular resistance everywhere. And you also get this increased airway resistance as well. Mm. But how, like, if you're hypoxic, how do you then become, you know, hypertensive? How do people die from massive peas kind of in a few hours? You know, like that circulatory shock. So you usually block off enough of your... uh Right, so your lung circulation, your lung vasculature, that your right heart is now pushing really hard to get Mm. all of that blood through a smaller cross-sectional area, which Mm. increases the pressure. So essentially your right heart is working harder to push that blood through fewer vessels. And then that starts impacting on your left heart. Um, So it starts ballooning ballooning into that left ventricle, and that stops working well as a pump. People get shocked and die. So that's how people pass away from uh, pulmonary emboli. 
All right, so moving along into the evaluation. So there's three main questions that I think about when I work up a patient with a PE. So the first one, is it really a PE or is it some other, you know, can't miss uh, mimic like a um, dissection or a, or a myocardial infarction or something? Mm. Second question is how bad is it? So that's uh, grouped by massive, submassive or low risk. So what's a massive PE? So that's if it's associated with what we were talking about before, which is cardiovascular shock or mm. persistent hypotension. Cardiovascular shock being a state where you're not perfusing all of your tissues because your output's dropped from yeah. your heart. Then you've got submassive, which is where you're kind of on the way to there. You've got a right ventricular dysfunction that we found on echocardiography or CT, or you've got some elevated cardiac enzymes, but you're not actually shocked. Your, your right side of the heart's just working hard. So if your troponin's up or something like that, yeah. you know, it indicates that your heart's working so hard that it's actually leaking a bit of troponin in yeah. the system. And then your, your third category is uh, low risk. So you know there's a clot there, but it doesn't really seem to be impacting on the heart very much. So that was the first two questions. And the third question is, why did this happen? What's the underlying etiology? Is there something else going on that I need to worry about? So three questions. Is it a PE? How bad is it? And why did this happen? So moving along to the first part of any good evaluation, the symptoms, the history. So UpToDate has a pretty good list of presenting symptoms. And it, as UpToDate always does, orders them in a order of how frequently they occur. What do you think is the most common symptom? Dyspnea at rest, or mm. with exertion. Mm. Pleuritic pain is number two, and then calf or thigh pain or swelling is uh, number three. So that's 73% of people are dyspneic, 44% of people have pleuritic pain, and 44% of people have calf or thigh pain. Keep in mind, the calf or thigh pain sort of refers to a DVT being in wherever that pain is, whereas swelling could just refer to you know your right heart failing from that increased pressure in the right heart, in the pulmonary vasculature, like we were talking about. Hemoptysis is another one, but that's actually quite rare. It's very specific in the in the right context, uh, but only 13% of people with PEs have hemoptysis. An interesting one as well is uh, orthopnea, 28%, which I always think of as pretty specific for heart failure, but you can get it in PE as well. Mm. That's in 28% of patients, so reasonably common. So time course, I'm obsessed with this, as you know. What's What does it typically happen? How does it typically happen? Usually a sudden onset. So it's not someone who's sort of getting more and more short of breath over four or five weeks. Yeah. It's like they were doing something and yeah. suddenly they became quite short of breath and an acute attack. There's a really important exception, though. Uh, saddle emboli when they're sitting, you know, right between the two main pulmonary arteries. So that can actually uh, present with a more coronary course because the emboli sits there and just flicks off all these little clots into the more distal segments. And can that can kind of happen over weeks. So that's a, a scary thing to keep in the back of your mind. So if it presents chronically, that can actually be like a really bad PE. But keep in mind, someone who presents with saddle has saddle emboli, so one that's sitting, in, again, in that mm. junction of the two main pulmonary arteries is probably going to more pre- pre- present with like shock, massive PE symptoms, like hypotension, that sort of thing. Yeah. All right, so the other thing you can do in history is start looking for a cause. Why did this happen? So the what we call provoked PEs, when there's a, one of the common provoking factors, so that's major surgery, recent hospitalization, pregnancy, or immobility for other reasons. And then you can go beyond that and look at more like general underlying causes. Have they had a a venous thromboembolism before? Like, is there some kind of predisposition in this person? Do they have a family history of venous thromboembolism? Does their personal history kind of lend it to anything in particular? Like, do they have inflammatory conditions, malignancy, nephrotic syndrome is one that's um, sometimes not thought about that commonly. If you're wondering why that causes PE, our nephrotic syndrome podcast would be a great resource to answer that question. 
Uh, then you got to, as always, you got to look at the medication list. For for women in particular, you got to look at uh, hormone replacement therapy or the oral contraceptive. So another important question to ask for women is, have they had any miscarriages? Because that could mean maybe there's like an antiphospholipid syndrome or something going on there in the background. And you should always just ask the malignancy type questions. Have you had any night sweats? Have you been having fevers, recent sweats, weight loss? chills, unintentional weight loss, anorexia. All of that stuff. All right, so that's the history. Moving on to the signs. So what's the most common sign? Tachypnea. So tachycardia is the Fast thing that's breathing. most common on ECGs, and that's a really common uh, exam question or ward question. But the most common sign in a person is tachypnea. happens in half of patients. <laughs> <laughs> so the second most common sign is uh, calf or thigh swelling. So erythema, edema, tenderness, palpable cords. That happens in up to half of patients. I was surprised about that. That's really common. Yeah, I don't think I've seen many palpable cords in my time. That's when you can actually feel the vein. Feel the clot. I felt one the other night. Did you embolize that clot after you were feeling it? Did you <laughs> massage it away up to the lungs? Possibly. Uh, other signs, so tachycardia is common as well, 24% of patients. And uh, then some other ones are creps, decreased breath sounds. Crackles. An accentuated pulmonic component of the second heart sound in 15% of patients. So that's really off in the weeds. Uh, JVP up, that's an important one because that means there's probably some right heart strain going on if you see that one. And interestingly, you can actually have a fever. Low-grade sort of fever. Yeah, so I was called to see a patient recently. had a massive PED dimer. was like 9,000. And the nurse was like, do they have pneumonia as well? I'm like, no, let's hold off on the antibiotics. He saved the day. He saved another antibiotic-resistant really? bug entering the Australian system. <laughs> this guy's great. Keep in mind, so we said crackles or creps uh, can be seen in PE, but like, if you're on a ward round, don't say crackles because the classic fi- exam findings, they got a clear chest, but they're really short of breath. Mm. All right, so when our jobs are taken over by robots, which is going to happen in the near future, what is what kind of score are those robots going to use that uh, incorporates those symptoms and signs that we've just talked about? The well score. The well score. Well score. So the well score, that's what we use to answer that common question, could this be a P, do I need to do a CTPA? So the things that are in the well score, so the most important thing is do they have symptoms of DVT, that's three points. And the other one is no alternative diagnosis better explains the illness. So that's another three points. I like to remember that as physicians, if they ever invent a score, this, the thing they'll weight most to is their own judgment. Mm. And uh, it take- defeats the purpose of having a score, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> we won't be replaced by robots just yet. Mm. Other things are tachycardia, immobilization recently, so like a provoked DVT. Or surgery recently. Prior history of DVT, uh, presence of hemoptysis, and uh, presence of malignancy. So that gives you a score. And if it's uh, greater than six, that's a really high probability. If it's between two and six, that's a moderate probability. And less than two, that's a low probability. So that kind of guides what you do next. Do you do a D-dimer? Do you do a CTK? We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Then you've also got the PERC criteria. So that's a rule-out criteria. So there's eight things that someone has to satisfy for you to be completely sure this is not a PE clinically. I don't need to do any further testing. So if they're less than 50, heart rates less than 100, SATs, oxygen SATs greater than 95%, no hemoptysis, no estrogen use, no previous DVT, no unilateral leg swelling, and no surgery or trauma. You don't need to remember this. All you need to remember is the well score and the PERT criteria, two things you should be looking up. To Fire up your immobile phone and uh, just punch in the dates. That's the one. All right, so next thing I usually look at in a 
PE consultation is the ECG. So what's the main question I'm asking myself when I'm looking at that ECG, if we think back to our pathophysiology? Is there evidence of right ventricular strain? Yeah, so that's, that's the thing that's going to kill people, and that's the thing we can't miss. So the most worrying sign on an ECG? Uh, going from tachycardia to bradycardia, or suddenly lengthening your QRS complex so that's you right. now have a right bundle branch? That's right, yeah. So that, uh, that could mean that right ventricular strain is happening and there's impending shock. So that's the most worrying thing. So tachycardia is the most common thing, but the most worrying thing is if they've been tachycardic and suddenly gone bradycardic without you obviously intervening in some way. Other signs that you should look out for, so complete or incomplete right bundle branch block, right ventricular strain pattern. So what's that? So you can get, there's a number of things you can get. T-wave inversions in the right lead, so that's V1 to V4, the ones mm-hmm. on the right side of the heart. Also the inferior leads. Um, you can also get sort of a, uh, a late R-wave transition on the ECG, which normally your R-wave should be sort of dominant all the way at about V3, V4, but mm-hmm. sometimes in these people it doesn't change until V5 or V6. Uh, right axis deviation is another sign of that as well. So S1, Q3, T3, we should probably talk about that briefly. So that's that common supposedly pathognomonic sign. What is it? So you get a deep S wave in lead one, a Q wave in V3, and an inverted T wave in three as well. Yeah. So it's, it's classic, but it's only found in 20% of patients. Mm. And keep in mind that an isolated inverted T wave in three can be normal as well. So moving right along to the next test that you'll probably get, and that's the ABG, the arterial blood gas. So if you have got a patient you suspect of peeing, what are you looking for on the P on the ABG? Sorry? Hypoxemia without a high carbon dioxide would be a pretty good mm. start. Particularly a widened AA gradient or alveolar arterial gradient. If we think back to that pathophysiology. A lot of air in the lungs, it's not getting effectively mm. into the blood because exactly. it's all blocked off by a clot. You've got to be wary, though, because uh, the ABG is neither sensitive nor specific because people that get PEs often have some kind of underlying cardiopulmonary disease that puts them at risk of that. Also keep in mind that not many people with a clear-cut diagnosis of PE actually end up getting an ABG in the hospital because you do another investigation, it shows a clot, and you move on. You don't mm. need to do the ABG. Mm. I've certainly been on situations on the ward where we're wondering whether to do a CTP or not, and it's tipped us one way or another. Mm. Mm. So then D-dimer, what is it? It's a fibrin degradation product. So when fibrin breaks down, as in where, when there's a clot somewhere in the body and you've got fibrin breaking down from there, it starts to build up in the blood and you can see this D-dimer, this yeah. D-dimer breakdown product elevated in the blood. So this D-dimer test, when should you do it? Mm, query never. Query never. <laughs> People don't like it when you do D-dimers. Mm. It's, an, it's a very sensitive test. And uh, if you do a positive D-dimer, if it's a D-dimer, it's positive, you have it's to do a very, CTPA. It's not very specific. There's yeah. a whole bunch of things that can cause this fibrin degradation product to be elevated in your blood, including things like cancer and pregnancy. Note that these are a lot of the things that people who commonly get PEs. Mm. Um, and so ordering a D-dimer kind of forces you, because you've done it, and that kind of says at some point in time you thought it was likely enough that they had a PE, mm. and then you kind of, and it's positive, and you have to go and do an imaging investigation on mm. someone who might not need it or it might not be good for, like a pregnant woman. Mm. Correct. Um, but when should you do the D-dimer according to the well score? If it's uh, P, unlikely, moderately likely, or, or really likely? So because it's a highly sensitive test, even in someone who has a very high likelihood of having a PE, if it's negative, they've still got a reasonable likelihood of... And you've got to do PA. the CTPA anyway, right? Exactly. So it's useless in that group of patients. Mm. So who, who is it uh, useful in then? So you probably want to do it in people with low to intermediate probability, uh, so a well score less than four. So people that have a PERT criteria of 100% that 
you've ruled it out clinically, don't need a D-dimer. But people that you think maybe they could have a PE but it's not highly likely, use a D-dimer to tip you one way or another. All right, so moving on to the CTPA, which we keep mentioning. So what does that stand for? Computer Tomography Pulmonary Angiogram. You forgot what CT stands <laughs> for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I was going to say CT. Like, <laughs> yeah, CT that to me is not an acronym CT. anymore. That's yeah. just... <laughs> So how sensitive is it? 90%. So it's not 100%. But, but uh, very few false negatives. Mm. So the biggest problem we come up against with CTPA clinically is uh, it's an older patient. The renal function is not super flash. not in failure, but it's not super flash. And you're worried that they're going to have a contrast-induced nephropathy if you load them up with that CTPA contrast. So what, what can you do to minimize that risk? Well, you can give them lots of hydration, prehydration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, if you have someone who's having right ventricular strain, you don't really want to pour fluid into them. You can minimize the amount of contrast in imaging, which is difficult because the CTPA by nature requires a fair bit of contrast. You can stop all the nephrotoxic for a few days around the scan, like metformin, which isn't actually nephrotoxic, but a problem if you have a decreased renal function, NSAIDs and diuretics. Mm-hmm. And there's a little chemical called N-acetylcysteine. Some of you may have heard of N-acetylcysteine or NAC from paracetamol overdose where you can give it to minimize the damage to the liver but you can also use it theoretically to avoid contrast nephropathy so you give them a n-acetylcysteine infusion or a NAC infusion during the scan and it minimizes the damage to the kidneys there's not a lot of evidence that this actually does anything but it doesn't really cause any harm either so some people do it i've never seen it done in australia but yeah it's, it's, the official recommendations are do it if you're worried because it's not that harmful all right so next we're going to talk about vq scan so what's the big issue with VQ scan, basically? What's the issue with it? It's it's not specific, but it is sensitive. So it picks up everything. So if someone's got an abnormal chest X-ray from fluid overload or from pneumonia or COPD or whatever, you're very likely to have a positive VQ scan because all of that stuff will come up as well. But to, to go back a step, what, what is a VQ scan? So basically with a VQ scan, you give them uh, some dye through the arm, which perfuses all through the lungs, and then you take some photos, and you also get them to inhale a, another gas that is a radio frequency wave emitter, and you take some photos of that as well. And so essentially you can see where they're ventilating because the gas enters all those space in the lungs, and you take a photo. You can see where they're perfusing because the blood enters the lungs, and you can see where that is. And if there's any mismatch, so if there's an area where there's no blood getting to an area where there is ventilation then you know you've got a PE there. Or do you? <laughs> or, or you could have anything there. That's the other option. So VQ scans are pretty bad in people who have really bad lung disease because obviously they won't ventilate. Like, let's see, if you have a really bad COPD, you won't ventilate every part of your lung, so I, you will have patchy ventilation on there and it'll look like there's a mismatch. Mm. So when do you tend to do it? It's not the first-line investigation, so if you can do a CTPA, do that. But in situations where you can't because of dicey renal function, or because there's some kind of contrast allergy pregnant or pregnant, people. yeah. Plus a normal chest X-ray, then a VQ scan is a reasonable option. So as I said, very sensitive but not very specific. But you end up in a lot of situations with VQ scans where you can neither rule in or rule out. Mm, this is an intermediate probability scan, and then you're like, well, uh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was before. <laughs> I have seen that report many times. Mm. All right, so echocardiogram. Again, similar to the ECG, we're looking at the heart to see if there's RV strain. Sometimes you can even see a clot, but that's very rarely. It's mostly for the RV strain. I have on occasion seen echo done at the bedside to make the diagnosis of PE, where someone's too unwell to scan them, and you want to make sure there is actually RV strain going on before you thrombolize them or whatever. So 
What about uh, troponin and B natriuretic peptide? They're hard things. Why why are you doing that in a lung problem, Rahul? Yeah, like we said, these can be helpful to detect uh, RV strain or any strain on the heart, but obviously they're not very specific for pulmonary embolism. There's a lot of things that can cause your troponin to go up and mm. be natriuretic peptide. With troponin, the obvious one being a mimic, the AMI. But can be useful in answering the question, is this an RV strain type PE? How serious is it? Mm. All right, so that's that's the the investigations for working out, is it a P and is it a serious P? So the next question we've got to ask is, uh, why did this happen and how do our investigations help us? Start with the humble CBC, complete blood count. Yeah, that's what we call it in Australia. <laughs> that's right, well, aka the FBE. Uh, I like to examine blood here. <laughs> the full blood exam. So you're looking for evidence of myeloproliferative disorders, in particular polycythemia or thrombocytosis. You might see that kind of thing. So you polycythemia, might... obviously, very elevated mm. hemoglobin above mm. 160 and thrombocytosis, so yeah, platelet count probably mm. above 1,000, but anywhere elevated above 450. Actually, all the patients that I've seen with either of those conditions, they were first diagnosed with uh, PE, and then they looked at the FBE and they're like, hang on. Really? I reckon I, reckon I know why this really? is happening. That's yeah. some good seed of the pants of medicine. That's mm. Uh, mm. So we end up doing coags a lot of the time on people with peers anyway because you've anticoagulated them. But from a diagnostic point of view, what's uh, what's an important thing to look out for? An isolated APTT rise suggests that the, someone might have the lupus anticoagulant, which obviously can predispose you to having a PE. Mm. You've also got your erythrocyte sedimentation rate or your ESR. That's an important kind of screening test. If that's markedly elevated, you might think about malignancy or multiple myeloma or some kind of other inflammation at the root cause. Very nonspecific, but might hint you, depending on the patient you look at, to go in a different direction. Now, this is something I've seen done quite a bit, uh, imaging, pan-scanning people to, to look for a cancer when they've had a PE. What are the what are the official kind of guidelines on that? Is that something you should commonly do? That is not something you should commonly do. Correct. So Can everyone should get a good history and exam, of course, uh, and they should get routine age-appropriate screening, but this pan-scanning thing is generally inappropriate, except for maybe like some really high-risk patients, so people that have had recurrent uh, venous thromboembolism and you haven't found a good cause for it, or in particular spots, particularly hepatic and portal vein thrombosis is high risk for malignancy. All right, so the other question is, who do you do a thrombophilia screen on? Firstly, what is a thrombophilia screen, Rahul? Thrombophilia screen is basically looking for any of those things that can predispose you to having a thrombos. Um, so protein C, protein S deficiencies, antithrombin deficiencies. So those are the most potent ones. Mm. You've got things like Factor V Leiden, named after Leiden, the city where it was discovered. Oh, really? Yes, that's correct, which is a mutation of Factor V, which predisposes you to thrombus and prothrombin gene mutations as well. Those ones are more common, but not as potent in terms of causing a clot. And then you've got an antiphospholipid antibody. So that's anti-cardiolipin, beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibody, and lupus anticoagulant. So don't worry too much about those. You can just look up thrombophilia screen when you come into this situation. But what you should remember is who do you actually screen for those kind of things? People with a family history probably first off. So if you have one first-degree relative with a documented venous thromboembolism, so DVT or PE, before the age of 45, so pretty young, that would be reasonable to go ahead and screen yeah. them. So other patients, you think about it, young, unprovoked patients, they'll, they'll usually get a thrombophilia screen. Patients with a recurrent thrombosis with no clear cause and patients with a thrombosis in multiple venous sites and in unusual vascular beds. So everyone that I've ever seen with a, a venous sinus thrombosis in the brain has always got a thrombophilia screen. 
So the tricky thing about thrombophilia screen is though, that it should be done two weeks after the discontinuation of anticoagulation and not in the acute stage. So when that is for someone who's had a, a dangerous PE that's unprovoked, is is uh, tough to pick. So that could be at the three-month mark, but if you're going to anticoagulate them for longer. All right, Rahul, time to put you to the test with some real-life cases. How good a doctor are you? Did we not talk about treatment for any of that? This is what we're talking about now. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to run through treatment in these specific scenarios that I've designed, inspired by real-life events. Yeah. So let's talk about Sandra, not her real name. She's a 57-year-old lady who Her presents... real name was Kelly. In case <laughs> who presents with sudden onset shortness of breath and chest pain. She's just returned to Melbourne after driving from Perth, which for our Kazakhstan listeners is a really long way. Mm. Her past medical history is unremarkable. Examination is unremarkable. She has a swollen left leg, though. ECG and troponin are all normal. CTPA shows a left-sided segmental PE, so no right heart strain there. And her full blood exam, coags, and chest x-ray are all normal. What's the diagnosis? So this is a low-risk PE with a probable provoking factor of that long drive from Melbourne to Perth, which is the equivalent, I guess, if you live in Kazakhstan, of sort of deblachtik to mashdeblachtik. All right. Those are real cities. <laughs> so what do you want to do? Uh, I'd, since she's so young and doesn't have much else wrong with her, I'd probably give her a novel oral anticoagulant, so stuff like Apixaban, Rivaroxaban, or Dabigatran. These gonna, ones are the you, new drugs. You're going to bridge her with Clexane? Uh, we'll only give her Clexane if she's on. If we start her on Dabigatran. Correct. So the Dabigatran trials were all done with bridging Clexane. People were really scared at that point that the drugs didn't actually work. And then they kind of eased off with the, with the newer ones, Apixaban and Rivaroxaban. But for that reason, we, we still have to give Clexan for five days if we start someone on Dabigatran. So we tend to use Pixaban most commonly. And uh, the chart- How do those drugs work, Dabble? So that's an anti-thrombin 10A inhibitor, and Dabigatran is a direct thrombin inhibitor. Mm-hmm. That's right. So a Pixaban, the easy way to remember that, the ones that Zaban, X-A-B-A-N, the X-A is for 10A. Mm. So that's nice and easy. I, I've just been doing it by brute force all this time. Blow your mind. <laughs> So what are your chances? What should you tell the, the patient? What are, what are the chances of this happening again if you put them on a Pixaban? During the Pixaban? Just ever in their life. Oh, about 2% mm. in a provoked situation. And there how- is probably a whole milieu of things that lead to people like this, actually. Genetic mutations that probably predispose people like this, just ones we haven't identified. So she's probably at a higher risk compared to the normal population, I mm. guess, is the, the feeling. How long are you going to keep her on a Pixaban for? For three months because she had a discrete provoking factor. Correct. Okay, let's move on to Dan. He's a 17-year-old guy who presented with a segmental PE diagnosed on CTPA. It's low risk. He's hemodynamically stable and there's no signs of right heart strain anywhere. But we can't figure out where it came from. He's 17. So what are you going to do? What is he? What workup does he deserve? I'll probably see if this guy's a thrombophile. Mm, does he love thrombi? Yeah. Um, and he actually has a protein C deficiency, which is not the worst thrombophilia to have. But, but it, it is potent. It is one. Mm. And then how long are you anticoagulating for? You can use a NOAC, you can use a Pixaban, and you don't need overlapping clexane. But how long to anticoagulate him? That's a specialist decision. He's got to go see a hematologist. Hematologist, hematologist, as the Americans call it. Most people would be three to six months. But something Mm. you can do after the three to six months is check the D-dimer. And if that's normal at that stage, you'd probably be a bit more comfortable just letting it go. All right, Pete, he's a 52-year-old guy. He's got stage 4B lung adenocarcinoma, and that is as bad as it sounds. He's probably, unfortunately, not got long to live. 
But he comes in with chest pain and shortness of breath. ED wastes no time, does a CTPA, diagnoses a segmental P. Trop's normal, ECG's normal, no signs of right heart strain. What do you do next? A Pixaban? That's my favourite drug. Should we give him Pixaban? Negative. Why not? Because there are no trials validating that malignancy, that the new anticoagulants are safe in malignancy-related PA. So he needs Clexan. The main reason for that is that warfarin, they, we know that warfarin in malignancy has a higher chance of recurrent PA. So mm. we use Clexane in them, and no one's shown that the new ones are safe yet. There is a trial, Rivaroxaban trial. I think Australia has a couple of centers where they're trying oh, yeah, Rivaroxaban. Cool. So a couple of the ones who have warfarin problems, um, who have malignancies, Monash at least, some of the hematologists will put them on Rivaroxaban. Right, I didn't know that. Mm. So it is something you've got to frequently reevaluate, though, because as people with cancer get towards the end of their life, they're at more risk of kind of intracerebral hemorrhage and, and falls and that kind of thing. So it, it deserves reevaluation, but for now, he'll probably be on uh, lifelong injections to the tummy of Clexane. All right, Debbie. She's a 57 year old lady who came into ED straight away and told the triage nurse that she has a PE. Triage nurse was surprised, but the reason Debbie knows that she has a PE is she's had the exact same symptoms before. And uh, her concerns were confirmed. Uh, she did have a P on CTPA. No signs of right heart strain. That's great. Um, the last time her anticoagulation was ceased after three months, and uh, there were no provoking factors this time either. Her last P was unprovoked as well. What do you do? Another three months? I probably would have given her six months the first time. But anyway, um, yeah, lifelong anticoagulation for Debbie sounds like the plan. Mm. She's got a, a second episode of uh, venous thromboembolism, has a 50% higher risk of recurrence when compared with the first event. So much higher risk of recurrence. And once they have two unprovoked events, that's going to earn them some lifelong, lifelong. anticoagulation in the absence of uh, contraindications. Probably put someone like this on a NOAC, given that she's young and has a few other illnesses yeah. and she's going to have to be on this for the rest of her life. I think that'd be reasonable. So the question is, should, should we have anticoagulated her for life the first time? It's a controversial question, Double. <laughs> so the risk of recurrence is pretty high in an unprovoked episode of VT. It's 10% at one year and 30% at five years. So that's kind of a line ball call. And uh, it's, it's definitely an individualized decision. So you've got to consider the risk of recurrence and the risk of bleeding on the other side. And that D-dimer test at three months can be really helpful in making that decision. All right, next case, Ben, 45-year-old guy who has come in with a PE after he developed a PE <laughs> on a long-haul flight. It's a well-written case. <laughs> CTPA shows he has a saddle embolus. That's one of the bad ones. With right heart strain. This is sounding bad. He's got extensive ECG changes with new T-wave inversion, right axis deviation, right bundle branch block. He's still in quite a bit of pain, and he was requiring 10 litres of oxygen to sat above uh, 90%. Initially, his blood pressure was uh, holding at about 130 systolic, but now it's dropped to about 80. What do you do? This guy is a massive PE. He's a massive PE, bro. Yeah. Um, so you want to thrombolize this guy and get rid of all that clot ASAP. Mm. So what's, uh, what's thrombolysis? Is that like thrombolysis. loss of heparin? Yeah, just heaps of heparin. <laughs> <pour it in. laughs> directly. Incorrect. Uh, thrombolysis is the use of an agent that actually breaks down. It's a fibrin-specific degradation agent, so something like uh, <coughs> alteplase, tenecteplase, retoplase. Mm. Um, they go in and they dissolve all of the clots in your body, essentially, and bam, suddenly PE is cured. So this is a good point to mention that anticoagulation doesn't actually break down clots. It prevents more clot from being 
formed on top of the clot because clot clot begets clot, right? Mm. And if you stop that from happening, then your body can just... Slowly resolve. Exactly, yeah. Mm. All right, so what if it was the exact same case? You've got Ben again, but he wasn't hypertensive. All those other signs of right heart... Well, that, my friend, is the definition of contentious. Mm. So here's a submassive period in that case. He's got right heart strain. ECG changes, trop rises in there somewhere, I think. So there's no positive trials, but some people argue that that's because they've treated all right ventricular dysfunction the same way, where they should have stratified it a bit more. There's RV dysfunction and there's RV dysfunction. Someone's got that impending uh, bradycardia in the right bundle branch block, I'd be be at least getting your tenecta place ready. Yeah, at least just squirting a little bit on the ground so you make sure the plunger works. (laughs) All right. Next case, Diana is a 50-year-old lady who has just come in with her third P despite being on a Pixaban on a background of hemolytic anemia. She has a pulmonary hypertension from all the P's she keeps on having with an RVSP of 45. Yes, people know what that means, Tafel. Yes, right ventricular systolic pressure. So she's got pulmonary hypertension from all these P's. And uh, so what do you do in someone like that? Do you give them like double the Pixaban? Do you just like add warfarin on? Um, yep, just <laughs> triple thrombolize them right there. Uh, so in this lady, you could consider a vena cava filter if she has, I guess, evidence of a DVT. So that's a filter that sits in your vena cava and just basically collects clots as they float up, mm. prevents them from getting to the lungs. So there's three indications for a vena cava filter. What are they? Someone who you can't anticoagulate for whatever reason, if they have you know, a high risk of bleeding, mm-hmm. um, if they have PEs despite the anticoagulation they're on. Mm-hmm. And another PE, someone who had another PE would pretty much terminate them. So this lady... So Diana meets the criteria for the second and third reason you gave. Mm. Uh, Because if she had another PE, then, you know, that would really set off her pulmonary hypertension and she keeps having them despite anticoagulation. Some people would say in her you could try changing her to heparin first or like clexane first and then moving on to... Yeah, I think that'd be reasonable as well. Mm. I would get a hematology consult. Mm. All right, Bob... He's a 65-year-old guy. He's pretty immobile. He comes in with chest pain and hypoxia on a background of a stage 4 CKD. His Wells score, if you remember that score that the robots use, is 6, giving him a moderate chance of having a PE because he's tachycardic and you don't have a better diagnosis, basically. Unfortunately, because of his uh, terrible kidney function, we can't do a CTPA, so we don't have a good specific test available. So we reach to the VQ scan. It's indeterminate. What do you do? Probably start with a lower limb ultrasound on this guy to see if he has a DVT. Yeah, so if he's got a lower limb ultrasound, then you've got a if he's got a DVT on the lower limb ultrasound. You've got to anticoagulate him. But if it's negative, you can uh, potentially do a echocardiogram and see if you can see anything there. It's probably going to be low yield on him. But yeah, and if the if there's no DVT, you could probably withhold anticoagulation and then just do another lower limb ultrasound in a week or so. All right, so that's all the cases. Did well, Rahul. Thank you. Let's uh, let's bring it home. Let's uh, let's go through some take-home points quickly. So the pathophysiology of uh, pulmonary embolism. Why does it cause hypoxia and why does it cause shock, Rahul? Well, it causes hypoxia because you get a VQ mismatch. You block off a lot of the mm-hmm. uh, the flow to the lung where the oxygen could normally diffuse across into the blood. Why does it cause shock? That flow-on increased pressure in the right ventricle flows back to the right left heart, and the left heart, you know, essentially can't pump out enough to keep up the uh, peripheral blood pressure. Mm. Three questions uh, that we ask on our evaluation of a patient with potential PE. Is it a PE? Mm -hmm. How bad is this PE? Why did I get a PE? (laughs) gets pretty existential. Three commonest symptoms, dyspnea, pleuritic chest pain, and DVT symptoms. 
three commonest signs, tachypnea, DVT signs, and tachycardia. Which scores do you have to know the names of to look up on MD Calc? Well score and a PERC criteria, the PE rule out criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the first, second, and third choice imaging, Rahul. First, first choice, choice, CTPA. Second choice? VQ scan. Third choice? Transthoracic echocardiogram. No, I put lower limb ultrasound as third choice. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, well, let's do that then. All right. Lower limb ultrasound. Uh, uncomplicated provoked PE management. Three months on a NOAC. And then there's some special situations, so malignancy, just clexane, multiple unprovoked PEs, probably lifelong anticoagulation, and failed anticoagulation, consider a vena cava. These are all sort of like <coughs> hematology decisions, mm. so you'd probably be referring them on, except yeah. for malignancy, where you just put them on clexane. So the, the thing you need to know when you're a doctor out in the country and there's not many people around, someone's got suspected PE and they've got severe right heart strain, what do you do? You will probably want to thrombolize this person. Thank you very much, Rahul. Now, to leave it... Round round this out with a little bit of my my new hobby, which is Mongolian throat singing. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this. Also, hit us up on our Twitter. Hit us up on our Facebook. We'd really appreciate some Facebook likes. uh, If you could get on there and give us some comments about what you love. And uh, this here is a guy named Batsorik Vanchik. Enjoy. <laughs> a lot of throat singing. Maybe some throat singing coming. Yeah, yeah. Make conversations, everybody. That's a life worth spent mastering that. That's right. We'll see you next week. Pretty good haircut. Bye.